Your support helps us bring fresh voices, new voices, and credible voices. Support Mind Podcast by clicking on support the Mind Podcast link on mind.net. You can also write to us at info at mind.net about any other way you would like to support Mindmakers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mind Podcast 82.0, your weekly source for news, views, and analysis and analysis of news. This week, because we were feeling special, we decided to go beyond the analysis of news and go into in-depth analysis. And we have a special guest with us today. We have uh, Padma Bhushan, Dr. David Frawley uh, here. I'll just introduce him in a minute. Together with me are going to be my co-conspirators. Yeah, I was, I was thinking of a better term. But anyways, <laughs> we'll go with the co-conspirators. Too much politics. Uh, I was yeah. He looks at conspiracy, he finds conspiracy in everything. Everything, yes. Yeah. Uh, Surinda Vashisht and Pramod Kumar Buravani. Thank you, Adil. Uh, so, without much further ado, um, today we are pleased to have uh, Padma Bhushan, Dr. David Frawley, who is an American Hindu teacher and author. His uh, studies include Ayurveda, uh, Yoga, Vedanta and Vedic Astrology. Uh, he has a D.Lit in Yoga and Vedic Sciences and he was awarded the Padma Bhushan by the Government of India last year in March. Um, we are honored to have Dr. Frawley on the podcast. Uh, welcome, Dr. Frawley. Thank you. It's a great honor for me to be with you and to see such enthusiasm and depth on so many important issues and causes today. Absolutely. We're just delighted to have Dr. Frawley here. I think Mind Podcast today has gone up several notches, notches. just by your presence mm -hmm. here. Absolutely. We are delighted. Absolutely. So I would like to uh, kick things off with a question that I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. You've written a very moving book, How I Became a Hindu. In, it came out in 2001, I think. Yes, correct. Uh, and can you describe your journey from uh, David Frawley to Pandit Vamdev Shastri? Well, it's a long story, uh, but like so many, I was part of the 60s movement, mm -hmm. and we came into contact with a lot of the Hindu gurus for the first time, mm -hmm. and we were the first generation that had access to that literature. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I was uh, also ex uh, studied Sri Aurobindo quite extensively, uh, the works of Yogananda, mm -hmm. and I was able to receive Yogananda's Kriya Yoga at the age of 19. Wow. And uh, then Ramana Maharshi's teachings, and of course there were many movements then. There Absolutely. were Prabhupada, there was the TM, there were mm -hmm. so many. Uh, but somehow I had an interest, uh, philosophical mind, interest in older ancient teachings. Mm -hmm. So I gradually explored some of the Vedic teachings. And then I did some original research of my own, and one of my main contacts was Ananda Moy Ma. I was able to correspond with her actually back in my 20s. And then in my late 20s, I did some work on the Vedas and Upanishads, trying to explain their deeper meaning, and I, I came into contact with MP Pandit at the Aurobindo Ashram. I had produced a huge manuscript on the Upanishads, and you know, I was an independent writer. I thought it was just my own personal study. So I presented it to Pandit, and he said, this is great. We're going to publish this for <laughs> wow. you in India. And I said, I'm not an academic. He says, that's very good, because the <laughs> academics are making all the mistakes, <laughs> Yes. and you have come from another perspective. So yeah. he started uh, publishing my works in Aurobindo publications. And then in the short time I had been to, I went to India, I visited a lot of the teachers, I got to know a lot of the groups and many teachers on many different levels, mm -hmm. uh, Ayurvedic teachers, Jyotish teachers, great gurus like Shivananda Murti, Swami Dayananda yeah. and others. So it just kind of one thing went to the other 
and I happened to come and de develop the Ayurveda, other things that became popular. We didn't know at that time. We studied yeah. all those things privately. In the 80s, that came out as a big movement. Mm -hmm. So I was just brought by this force. And Absolutely. No plans, yeah. uh, and no official uh, approach in academia, but a study of the traditional literature mm -hmm. and the because traditional Because you went back teachers, to the source. Went back to the source, the Sanskrit. Which is a great deal. And yeah. what I learned from people like Aurobindo was that a lot of the works had been mistranslated and misunderstood, starting with Rig Veda itself mm -hmm. and moving forward from there. Yeah. I also worked extensively with the yoga and Ayurvedic movements yeah. in the West and now the United States, South America, Europe, Russia, got to see all that, India. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a very interesting journey <laughs> that keeps <laughs> unfolding with a lot of synchronicity yeah. and no specific uh, plans on my part to do one thing or another. And it's interesting you brought up the yoga movement, yes. which was, it had started as a, a small movement, but now it's in, uh, like it's been a force multiplier right yes. now. And it's like transmorphed into something that was even bigger than what it was in the 70s or so. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, and not only that, you see, originally, actually in the 60s, uh, uh, the yoga was a much more spiritual movement. Correct. The asana side wasn't as important as the gurus. Mm -hmm. Then the asana side came out more so. Mm -hmm. And now the opposite movement is occurring in that a, a lot of the, the Ayurveda and other Vedic disciplines are coming back into the yoga. And I'm so glad that India, it's a, people are recognizing that this yes. came from India because that can happen quite easily in the West because you might think that yoga suddenly gets appropriated and you don't know where it came from. So it's wonderful that people are associating, people like yourself have yeah. done yeah. such good service in that yeah. aspect. And also the spiritual yoga movements in the West have continued to grow as well, yes. like Self-Realization Fellowship and all these uh, yoga movements, yeah. ISKCON, TM, they're they all still growing. Amaji. Yes. yes. I want to take you back to something. What was a seminal, a phenomenal moment for my generation? Mm -hmm. And you're such a prolific writer. But the very first book that completely changed my generation was Arise Arjuna. And before this podcast, I told you that it was on my bucket list <laughs> to one day tell you that Arise Arjuna changed my life. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just because, you know, I had to say it because I met you, mm -hmm. but it truly did. Mm -hmm. As a impressionable teenager, when I was mm -hmm. given that book to read, I literally sat up and, and I was like... Was she was poking fun that I had not read the book. I, I, was <laughs> I usually am the first one who asks her that question. Because I was saying, because we are same generation from more than I, I was like, how do you get to 25 without reading Arise Arjuna? You don't do that. <laughs> In my generation, you didn't get to 25 without huh? reading that book. So I literally sat up and I was like, I need to look inwards. I need to know who I am. Mm. And that is the time. I think someone very articulately, even though it was in our minds, but no one had articulated mm. civilizational India, civilizational aspect of right. India that beautifully as you did in a form of a book where people could read, they could quote from it, they could go back to it, and the book kept unfolding itself in myriad layers. How did Arise Arjuna happen? Well, it's interesting. When I went to India, uh, I one of my my main had a main Ayurvedic teacher there. Happened to be a major journalist in Maharashtra named Balavashta. He had done a book. He had done books on uh, Guru Gobind Singh, on mm -hmm. Savarkar. Uh, he had been an editor of Kesari, which is mm -hmm. a, a Pune newspaper. And uh, he not only knew my Ayurvedic work, he knew my study of Vedas and ancient history. He says, "Why don't you write some articles mm -hmm. on these topics?" Uh, so I 
wrote one, and the first one I wrote was Arise Arjuna, mm -hmm. and that came out in 1989, the article, okay. through uh, the, I think it was Hindu Vishwa ah. at that time. And that was the basis of the other articles that came in in the uh, book. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, I think it was 1991, I got a call in the United States from the Swami Narayan wow. organization. One of the main Swamis, Brahma Vihari Das, had read mm -hmm. that article, so he invited me to the Cultural Festival of India in mm -hmm. New Jersey mm -hmm. based upon that. So I had been writing in all the other areas. Mm -hmm. But Vashta said, well, you have to write something for the Hindus yes. because you have, what do you do? I mean, basically, I'm, I'm a Hindu in all mm -hmm. the practices and things that I do. But he says, the younger generation doesn't know how to articulate what that is. Why don't you write something? Mm -hmm. So that is how uh, it started. And I happened by chance to also run into the uh, Voice of India publishers at that wow. time, Ram Sarup and uh, Sita Ram Gol. So wow. they, they were willing to uh, do the And the fact the that you gave such a eye-catching title i yes. think half the job was done yeah because the minute people were asking hmm. why does arjuna need to arise yes. <laughs> the job was half no, done not just that what context is he referring to yeah because you know you 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 stay, take an instance what context in the 80s and the 90s yeah. were you referring to and that yeah. was the major story those were story. martial yeah. times yeah. <laughs> those were times when you took up the arjuna uh, you know analogy yes. which was very tough politically you know yes 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 you know. pramod already have his, has his gandhi out on the podcast <laughs> but Pramod, I, I wanted to uh, you had a question for uh, no, especially the evolution you did talk about Swami Paramahamsa Yogananda and the evolution I want you to give a little bit of uh, historical journey of how Hinduism has evolved in in the United States okay evolution of Hinduism in America actually Hindu ideas started to come to America in the 19th century through the transcendentalist movement uh, Emerson and Thoreau mm -hmm. Uh, Gita was honored and other teachings, even this, I think it was this Mary Baker Eddy and her mm -hmm. uh, Christian science was mm -hmm. originally based upon the Gita. But what really got Hinduism moving in the West was, of course, Swami Vivekananda mm -hmm. and the Ramakrishna movement from 1893. Uh, and what people in the West don't realize, not only did Swami Vivekananda bring yoga to the world, he also brought and revived Hinduism uh, in India. And when Vivekananda came to the West, he also called himself a Hindu monk. And he used a number of terms for what he did. Hinduism, Vedanta, Yoga. The yoga word stuck. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that yoga was something apart from Hinduism, but it was one of the same, same range of terms. So that movement picked up. And after, but we have to understand at that time, America was a very racist, a colonial country. Mm -hmm. uh, Vivekananda once said to the American missionary, American, he says, if you took all the mud at the bottom of the sea and threw it back in America, that would only be a portion of what the missionaries are doing wow. in our country, which was, of course, uh, uh, very bad at that particular time. So he created a foundation for that. But even up to 1910, the governor of California had a proclamation saying that Hindus were unclean and heathens and shouldn't be allowed into the country. So there were very little migration of Hindus uh, 
uh, to the United States. The first person to really get the yoga movement in America going was Paramahansa Yogananda, who lived in America since 1920. He encountered tremendous opposition, but he also encountered, like, uh, like Vivekananda, a lot of support and interest, particularly among the youth. So he established the yoga movement in a significant way as a spiritual movement. I've called him the father of yoga in the West, which Self-Realization Fellowship mm -hmm. is, is also using uh, in their work. And then in the late in the 50s, going into the 60s, there was the explosion of yoga, the spiritual movement in the West, uh, not only through Maharishi and the Beatles, through uh, Swami Vishnu Devananda mm -hmm. and uh, many Prabhupada. of the disciples of Swami uh, Shivananda and yeah. then Prabhupada. So many came, uh, Yogi Bhajan, uh, there was Kripalu and Amrit Desai. So that movement uh, was very much into the youth, uh, Swami Satchidananda. But at that time, there were still very few actually Indians in America. So the other phase of the yoga movement, then of course the Indians in America started coming in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even more. And then the yoga movement began spreading out and connecting with other aspects of healing. Mm -hmm. yoga and Ayurveda and other things, yoga therapy. And then it became uh, progressively entering into the society at two levels. One, the popular yoga movement, which is more the asana-based, and two, the spiritual yoga movement, mm -hmm. uh, which is based upon the gurus and spiritual practices. Both have grown consistently and steadily over the years. People see the asana movement more, but the spiritual yoga movement has also been uh, very powerful. We have now figures like Amaji, and Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, yes. etc., who are also in self-realization fellowship growing. And then with the Hindu community coming to America, now we have beautiful temples everywhere yes. where people can see. Mm -hmm. And we have had the uh, Hindus now being the most among the most educated and most affluent of the immigrant community, showing that Hinduism is not something primitive or superstitious. Yeah. In fact, when we repackage Hinduism in a modern way, better language, uh, through the Ayurveda, the yoga, the Vedanta, it is attracting the most affluent and educated section of the Western society, and of course, predominantly women uh, <laughs> as well, so that it has reinvented itself, taken yeah. on new forms, uh, new avatars, and had a very powerful influence promoting higher consciousness, science, spirituality, yeah. healing, psychological um, healing, and a lot of the prominent trends in Western thought in modern times have been from the Hindu influences. What helps is that faiths that came from Indian subcontinent can e so easily coexist, which is very difficult for people to understand, you know, that these faiths, they are never in collusion with anybody yes. else. Yes. So that's, that's a great thought. For us, it doesn't yeah. mean anything because yes. we've yes. grown up with it, we've lived mm. with it. But for somebody else coming, looking into yes. the mm. faiths, it's probably a huge concept. Well, you see, the issue is that in the Hindu tradition is one of knowledge, yes. not of belief or mm -hmm. faith. It's a way of knowledge that offers you many tools instead of like yoga has a philosophy, okay, mm -hmm. which is very powerful. But yoga also has a method that says you learn meditation, you can discover truth for yourself. And in that, you'll discover the philosophy and whatever else there is. So in the Hindu tradition, the emphasis is on direct experience at an individual level, not at an en masse faith. It's not just about believing in God, but how you can know the universal consciousness and providing you the tools so that you can realize it for yourself and do not have to depend upon a, an authority, a dogma. And so in the West, the concept of religion was so different. Yes. They couldn't understand that. 
and they think, oh, Hinduism is, oh, you just like we believe in Jesus, you believe in Krishna, you believe in somebody else like that. And that's not the case. And so that's why Hinduism is, we say, a pluralistic tradition. Mm -hmm. And that pluralistic spiritual tradition uh, is not out of is not in conflict with science or spirituality no, or all. modernism or not anything. At all. Yes. Wasn't there a wave in the fifties and sixties of vegetarianism and nonviolence also seeping into the political yes. structure? Yes. Uh, but Hinduism per se was not really uh, a benefactor of that those movements. Would you say that? Or well, Hinduism was in a sense indirectly, like Martin Luther King. They actually wore the the, the Gandhi hats. Right. Mm -hmm. They quoted Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, but there wasn't so much a, a presence of Hinduism in India, but the concepts were definitely there. Also in the anti-war movement, which I also was part of, there was an emphasis on the uh, ahimsa or nonviolence and the Gandhian side. So Hinduism has always come in many forms, vegetarianism, uh, animal rights, natural healing, yoga, meditation, mantra. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi introduced the term meditation in the West. No one was no, no, doing no it. it. Mm -hmm. He introduced the term mantra in the West. Yes. And now you have terms like guru, pandit, I know. shakti, yeah. prana. I know. They don't always have the correct meaning in the West. <laughs> I know, but they use the words. But they, the terminology come, has seen Not just pandit That culture has come They've in. even taken up chutney now. Yeah. <laughs> chutney <laughs> is see, culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You go to a very fancy yeah. American restaurant and they'll say apple chutney. Yeah. And I was like, all American. I was like, where do you think the word chutney comes from? <laughs> so, I mean, it's they, just, I mean, I'm just saying that in pop culture, like, yeah. how much the Indic faiths of uh, thing. And what Sunanda brought up a very interesting point about the uh, coexistence that yeah. uh, neither of any Indic faiths have been seen as a cult, say Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism or Sikhism. And they've always coexisted with each other. So to put them in Western paradigms is very difficult as well for a lot of people to understand that how India has. You know, yes, because they are ways of knowledge, culture, right. mm -hmm. and uh, they allow you individual freedom. Absolutely. And your relationship to your own teacher and teaching at a personal level is more important than what some book says at some period Absolutely. of time. And there's no idea of converting the world. There's the idea that we are all one self. We are all one being. There is a universal consciousness that we should share. Yes. Nobody, you cannot lose who you are. You don't need to, con you don't need to conquer the world. You need to under your, understand yourself. Yeah. And you should respect the divine in everyone and whatever form it takes, uh, you don't need to make everybody think like you, look like you, talk like you. Uh, it's about yeah. honoring Absolutely. and letting the full infinite come out in all of its uh, unity and diversity. Yes. Uh, so now moving from uh, religion and spirituality to politics. <laughs> Your cup of tea. Uh, yeah, always. Because, well, <laughs> Along with the cup of tea I'm sipping on right now. Well, politics is everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. So you so, can, you can... And religion has always been full of politics. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, you can. It's Since the Roman Empire, <laughs> they, they have cohabited. <laughs> so, anyways, we're going to we're going to come to that, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, very interesting pieces that uh, Dr. Frawley has written on the leftist intellectual and so forth in just a second. Before we get to our uh, next topic, um, I do want to say that this is Mindmakers production. This Mind podcast is brought to you by the Mindmakers team. This uh, podcast is produced and edited by Adit Kapadia with the help of our team in India. The panelists for the um, podcast are Adit Kapadia, Pramod Kumar Buravalli and Sunanda Vashisht, which is me. 
So, Dr. Frawley, as we said, we're moving to politics. So, you've frequently written on the intellectual bankruptcy on the le of the left, and yes. I completely agree about that, and how they harp on a, uh, and I really like this in a recent column you wrote, how they harp on failed revolutions. Of the past. Of the past, yes. and As uh, the model for the future. <laughs> it is It is such a big failure that we're going to repeat it in every country possible. So, when they talk about, and when they used to talk about the leaders of Venezuela, I always sh show them videos that now horrific videos that are coming out of Venezuela and yes. the crisis there is yeah. right now. So uh, do you think that the influence of left is receding from the institutions in India? And uh, what have your be challenges been in battling the left? Okay. Well, let me put a few things in perspective here. One, India is the only country in the world that still has active communist student unions, that has mm -hmm. communists running states like Kerala, writing textbooks. The textbooks in India have largely been written by Marxists Marxist. and communists, even yes. at a uh, national level. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in India, one of the great gods of the, new, of the left in India today is Che Guevara, yeah. as if he's still alive. Yeah. And they're still looking to those models as the future. Yes. Now, the other thing we see is that India is undergoing, like a lot of the world, a tremendous high-tech development, and the Modi government is very much behind mm -hmm. that. The left has no ideas and no interest in that particular area at all. Mm -hmm. They're always talking about the past, mm -hmm. and they're going, trying to go back to the older socialist principles that failed in other countries as a model for the future. There's no new ideas coming out of them relative to science and technology. They have no idea or no concept of any mm -hmm. higher consciousness, universal awareness, such as the Hindu thought uh, offers. Mm -hmm. And they still want people to read the, uh, the, the failed writers of the 20th century, even Karl Marx. Stalin is still there on the leftist pantheon uh, yes. in India. His picture is there. His works are being quoted. <clears throat> Mao is still there. Yeah. India still has Maoists. So it's like the ghosts of the left have continued in India. Yeah. And they have a place in several places. One is in a few of the academic institutions, mm -hmm. namely JNU, yes. which receives, which has mainly a lot of leftist professors, mm -hmm. and it was specifically designed to promote the Marxist point of view in Indira Gandhi era. Mm -hmm. It was, hab it was uh, habited by those people, and they mm -hmm. continue to run it. Mm -hmm. And the second is a lot of India's uh, English language media, particularly coming out of Delhi, has people who are either Marxist, communist, or who are or who relative, don't know any better. or who are relatives of them, yes. mm. relatives, or of Marxist. relatives or of, who are relatives of them, yeah. that is so running, true. running major, it's a web, ma yeah, yes, know, running major, absolutely. running major media corporations uh, in India, yes. and also the left in India is very affluent. They've yes. taken a lot of money for themselves, and they've used they've used academic and media positions to make money for themselves, yes. including getting money from uh, overseas. So they may talk about protecting the poor, and but they've never protected the poor no. in all their decades of rule. No, they haven't. There's a problem in India. There is overt lefts, which is fine, yeah. and then there are covert lefts. Yes. How do you deal with covert lefts? No, and then there is this bizarre, uh, the, which is a term coined by a journalist called povertarianism. Yes. Yeah. And Shekhar you have, Gupta yeah, Shekhar Gupta came up with it. So you have the overt left uh, uh, overtly doing it, and then you have the covert left, which are like socialist lefts, yes. who say, uh, who talk about, you know, povertarianism, keeping them poor, or keeping, yeah. and highlighting the poverty. Yes, but I than, said, the, uh, the in India, I wrote that, I said, India's left is not, we also call it the radical left, it's not a 
about removing poverty, poverty but keeping India poor because they see the poor India as a vote bank. Yes. And then they create all these uh, institutions, organizations, uh, ministries, departments to administer poverty and they take the money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But do you see it receding? Oh yes, that's why, that's why the Modi government has come into power. Yes. And, but as it recedes, they become vociferous in trying to defend their territory. Yeah. So many, see, if you graduate uh, with a, from the leftist point of view, there's no jobs for you because you're not yeah. into business, medicine, science, technology. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to have some job in the welfare state. Yeah. So as the welfare state gets removed, these people are losing their jobs. Or you go into media oh, yeah. or academia. Let me be a devil's advocate here. So the left will turn around and say, okay, the right, what have you produced till now? What do you have to say for yourself? Look at the tomes we have produced. All, what tomes? All propaganda, maybe. But then they'll say, what have you done? Well, first of all, they haven't produced anything. If you go to ICHR, which was run by the left for a long time, they haven't even finished the freedom movement. In fact, they said the it's taken them longer to uh, document the freedom movement than the freedom movement existed. <laughs> and they haven't produced anything. They haven't produced original futuristic ideas, economic plans, developmental plans. That's, I'm glad you're saying Science this and consciousness, this science and medicine. What they produced is their own literature, which is often narcissistics promoting their own or emotions. Propaganda. Or propaganda promoting their, their own thing. What has the left has even produced a state that has succeeded? Exactly. Yeah. They have True. only failed states. To, to take Dr. Frawley's point ahead, I think communism is an ideology for governance. Economic development is unsustainable. They, which has been documented. documented they yeah. refuse to admit it and they live in this insane utopia where you know delusion idea delusional ideas keep being yeah. said and the, one of my pet peeves and we've talked about this in the podcast as well they will always highlight the problems which exist but they will never provide any solution nor will they, they say actually they, they, no, they make it worse yeah. because you know you have like tons of other yeah. things going on but what have they done in Kerala Bengal Bihar the yeah. states that they've run are the backward states yeah. in mm -hmm. India the progressive states states are the states that have left for a more developmental model. But you have to understand that the India left is the radical left. Yeah. They're far to the Actually, Modi is to the left of Obama in terms of his social policies. True, true, true. And the Indian left is a radical left that terms anybody who's right of them as right-wing or fascist. The, the yes. center-right economists were really unhappy with the last budget presented because it segued into a little bit of eating into the leftist space with the you know, thrust on the rural, uh, you know, projects that were, you know, government, yeah. you know, you remember we talked about that. We in did, we did. And uh, in the, I, I get, I, I often um, uh, sort of chuckle to myself when they say that this is India's first right-wing government. I'm like, how, where, <laughs> when? Well, you see, in India, the left, I wrote articles and have a totally different meaning. Yeah. Uh, for example, in India, vegetarianism is the right wing, yeah. animal protection is right wing, yeah. yoga is right wing. Uh, and anything you that's know what slightly else is right wing yeah. asking for India not people not to break up India yes. is right wing. Nationalism is right wing. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if you're telling people that let's not break up India, let's not redraw redraw yeah. borders, you become right wing. And India is the only country uh, in which minorities get special privileges and money from the government, and the majority has special yes. taxes. Hindu temples are. 
This, the money is taken from Hindu temples in states of South India yeah. and used for general purposes yes. of the government. Yes. Uh, India is not a country that uh, belongs to left. I always said okay, no one line that uh, we have been so like ruled by the left for so long and I don't mean literally ruled, I meant like in terms of mind space and so yeah. forth that anything right of left wing is perceived as right wing. Yeah. No, I don't even think the Modi government is essentially a right-wing government. It isn't. Yeah, at it best, is. it's a right-of-center government, yeah. at best. And, yeah. uh, you know, the economics, the jury is still out. We've debated on that. Yeah, but, so, you, yeah, but you see, we can't use the Western terms so mm, clearly. Exactly, I agree and, with you. And you have to understand, the, I call the left in India either the radical left or the old left. Yeah. That is a good term. They are, they are the old left. They are still yeah. Stalinist. They are right. still killing people. Yes. Right. They are still suppressing. They do not allow other points of view to be given. Yeah. Just two days ago, RSS activist was hacked yeah, to death yeah, in Carolina. Yeah, it's been going Just on regu regularly for a long time. Yeah. But what left really does well is accelerate these fault lines. So then all these fault lines, because they have nothing, no solutions. Mm -hmm. So what they're going to do is they will just bring out these fault lines, Create manufacture division. fault lines that didn't exist. Yeah. Or if they did exist, as mature people, should you be removing the fault lines or should yeah. you be you know, sort of providing fuel to it. And one such fault line that we are seeing right now, which is becoming a huge political issue, is this whole quote unquote what is being called Dalit uprising. Yes, yes, yes. And you have seen newspaper articles written everywhere. Suddenly everybody is saying that BJP is anti-Dalit, yes, which yes. is not true at all. Yes. RSS is anti-Dalit, which is not true at all because I go yes, blue yes. in my face saying that RSS is probably only organization well, that says yeah. that there should be no caste yeah, yeah, yeah. differentiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you must have read about Dalit uprisings and all that yes, manufactured yeah, things. What but, is your view? Well, first of all, this is this is not something new. Okay. It's a repackaging of the old, which is to divide India. What happened was the Marxist theory of class war was redefined as caste war in the Indian context. So just as they promoted class war in Europe, they promoted caste war in India and then tried to cause division of, of the caste because of that. And of course, there is caste issues and caste problems. And then you have to understand that these socialist governments supposedly helping the poor ran India for most of the last 70 years and the problems have not uh, gone away. They didn't address them. They're only interested in this kind of Dalit issue at election times mm. and turning it in their favor, but they haven't done anything for them. But what do you have to say about this upper caste well, let me, BJP yeah. government yeah, yeah. being anti-Dalit? Actually, what's happened is the BJP government has been very pro-Dalit has a lot of entrepreneurial uh, schemes and projects for the Dalits, and it's making inroads into the Dalits. So because of that, they're trying to protect their Dalit, what they perceived as a Dalit vote bank. And then particularly with elections coming up in UP, where there's a large Dalit population and Mayawati and, and her particular uh, party, they're trying to promote that for elector electoral purposes. So this is all electorally planned, and they're refusing to take responsibility for the fact that these governments have done nothing for the Dalits. Whether it's Lalu Prasad, whether it's uh, Mulayam Singh and his, his group, they've all been social progressive parties, but they haven't helped the Dalits in any significant way, or they've divided Indian society along certain fault lines and caste lines. So they're all trying to manipulate what we call the uh, Dalit votes. Modi government also has done a lot of work for the poor, 
on a very general level, not just Dalit versus non-Dalit, but bank accounts for the poor, Jai education for the poor, Dalit Chamber of Commerce, so many things. But the media wants to ignore that because it doesn't favor the left electorally, mm -hmm. so they want to highlight Dalit violence. The, num the number of violent cases has not gone up, mm -hmm. and some of the so-called cases of anti-Dalit violence have been fabricated or exaggerated. But what they found, because they control the media, they can use the media as a weapon by putting out false cases, and then if they're forced to, if they're forced to uh, compromise or condition that Sadly, later, so they feel it. the damage has yeah. already been done. done. So the evolution of Hinduism also has a component of Neo-Ayurveda, the commercialization and the massive, I would say, the advertisement that is going on with new ways of looking right. at Ayurveda. Could you talk about that a little bit, okay. please? Well, first of all, we live in the commercial world. <laughs> everybody is commercializing, even all the Western religions, even all the modern medicine, everybody is commercial. So we shouldn't blame that Hindus, Hindus do that. That is part of the thing. And what's happened is Ayurveda is another example of the Hindu thought where something that was perceived in India as very backwards, the British tried to ban it as superstitious. Once you put it in a proper modern context and language, it's found to be one of the leading trends in mind, body, consciousness, medicine. So that reinvention of Ayurveda is very important. The fact that it has commercial viability is also very important because we need an alternative to the drug-based medicine. I'm not against the use of drugs, but they shouldn't be the first line of defense in dealing with conditions, whether it's uh, depression, whether it's a weak immunity, whether it's hyperactivity in children. There are natural ways of yoga, Ayurveda, diet, herbs, lifestyle, exercise that can deal with that. So it's very important that the Ayurvedic voice is out there. And we've also seen the same thing with Ayurveda. Once these Hindu teachings are uh, put in this kind of a broader language and in a modern context, then many people in the West will take it up even without necessarily being concerned with any kind of religious or spiritual component. So we also have a whole Western Ayurveda movement, but also it's interesting, the Western Ayurveda movement is more connected to Hinduism often than the yoga movement is. Because getting into the medicine, they also might discover the value of mantras and pujas and meditation and jyotish. And you, your pet topic of how Indic uh, ideology or Indic civilization has always had a very sisterly, brotherly relationship with science gets into that yes. uh, uh, sphere. Uh, you wrote a, a recent book, I think, just recently published on Somras. I think. Yes. Earth, yeah. uh, could you talk about that also a little bit? Well, basically, what we have to understand is the Vedic way of thought is universal concepts. Yeah. So actually, the Agni Soma is like Yin and Yang. There is a component of light and uh, fire, the Agni component. There's a component of water and nourishment, the Soma component. But these exist on many levels. And within ourselves, we are, our own brain can produce uh, secretions that bring about happiness, harmony, well-being. And these are natural. What the drug-based medicine does, they feel that if, if these secretions break down, then we give you a drug to make you do it. The problem is that becomes artificial. So what yoga and Ayurveda teaches us is that there are, there are certain mantra, pranayama, meditation, even certain herbs yeah. that can create a greater sense of well-being, connection to our inner immortality, 
uh, you might say, inner feeling of happiness and delight. So we don't have to simply depend upon the outer drugs, the outer stimulation, the outer entertainment. Mm -hmm. The rishis talk about connecting to the cosmic mind. If you can, or the yogis, if you can connect to the cosmic mind, do you need the internet? <laughs> if you can dis discover immortal bliss within yourself, do you need a drug? Do you need, do you need, do you need the tasty food? Do you need uh, uh, beautiful things on the outside? So we have the inner sciences of meditation and the inner science of connecting to universal energies, which is what the Vedic paradigm is. And that is what modern science needs to bring in. The outer science is fine, but it cannot take you to the inner reality. Yeah. For that, that's where the yoga, the meditation comes in. Science is recognizing meditation can help you with outer health and well-being, mm -hmm. but it also has a dimension of inner well-being, happiness, and expansion of awareness, which is what sure. we need today. Yeah. If, as long as our awareness is caught in petty cultural ego limits materialism will have conflict that's why the left is a failure because it doesn't have a paradigm of universal consciousness its paradigm is only social uh, division yeah. so the vedic thought gives us that and ayurveda has become the form of bringing that mind body consciousness connection into the society as a whole it needs more support more funding more education naturally uh, but it has now broken through and uh, made its inroads and is a force for the future. And only a Grihastha yogi like you can describe like what you have done. <laughs> <laughs> he's, talking, he's talking about the world wide web within. Yes. The universal, yes. There's nadis that connect the human brain with the cosmic mind. But the actually, yogis can open those, but the scientists have not I, yet. And actually, that, uh, and I was coming to the confluence of civilization because I'm, I'm a practicing Jain and that's what Jainism talks yes. about as well exactly that that about how you open your uh, inner mind when you are you know uh, uh, meditating and so so these confluence of civilizations of Jainism Hinduism mm. and so forth has always existed in India yes. on a Buddhism Sikhism too yeah on a spiritual level yeah. civilizational level uh, are you are you seeing this happen at an academic level as well well first uh, put in a broader perspective I like to tell people there's more religions and spiritual paths inside of Hinduism true than outside of it. Yeah. Okay. And in India, you have the Bharatiya tradition, mm -hmm. the Bharata tradition, which the Dharmic traditions, which mm -hmm. includes all these traditions, which were never really yeah. uh, so they all separate. Ha they all have the same origins and similar yeah. teachings, concepts, teachers, lineages, yeah. crossovers in uh, many ways. Yes. That spiritual pluralism. In the West, we have political pluralism, but we don't. Have, we have religious tyranny. Yeah. We have we have a monolithic religion with one only one. It's either our way or the highway. You might say. Sure. So the Indian tradition has that, and the Jain perspective has also been a very integral part of that, and recognizing that the living beings are everywhere uh, in all things. Uh, we must treat all life as sacred, and that we need to honor a deeper consciousness. We can have all the differences outwardly. That is not a problem. You can have different thoughts, a different body, different opinions, but that inner consciousness has to be honored and accepted. And that you is know, what these Hinduism traditions Hinduism is do. probably the only faith where forget about different Hindus or anything. From one house to another house, you have two different rituals, you know, yeah. probably from one house. I mean, 
He is a Hindu. I'm a Hindu. Yeah. I come from yeah. somewhere else. He comes from somewhere else. We have different. We have different ways of, um, you know. I think that's Pucha. India in general, so, not even just Hinduism. I, yeah. I would extend that to the entire country. Yeah. yeah so, to, to, yes, but at the same time, there is a common culture. Yeah. Yes. From exactly. Kashmir Something to Kanyakumari. Yes. And even in ancient, what is the biggest Hindu temple in the world? Is Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Cambodia. Yeah. And, you, you talked about the Tibetan Buddhist Buddhism yeah. considering Hinduism to be as divine as they, they're practicing Tibetan Buddhism yesterday when you were Yeah, well even Dalai Lama says that Hinduism yeah. and Buddhism are twin brothers. Yeah. Yes. He says they have different philosophies but the same values and practices. And interesting that, well, I mean, you, you have this interesting instance in the same family, Chandragupta Maurya, who ex embraced Jainism. His son was in the Ajivika side and his grandson Ashoka embraced Buddhism. Yeah. Same. And you have scores of families like that where like one person yes. went one way and it was considered just, you know, normal. Yeah. In Punjab, it was very normal to have have the older son become a Sikh and the, uh, you know, the rest of the family. Yeah. And it's interesting you brought up. A, and and a even son. in the even the Guru Nanak's son, yes. Shiri Chand started the largest order of Hindu swamis today. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, do my know. family had Vaishnavites and Shaivites who would normally have a very aggressive <laughs> discussion. But then sit and eat uh, lunch. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's another thing also that the, the beauty of it is we all have in India a very aggressive discussion, but everyone's united at the dining table. <laughs> and uh, and uh, but just to wrap this up, it's interesting you talked about Angkor Wat. I mean, we initially also uh, there was a temple called Maison Temple in Vietnam. Yeah. Yes. But then so we had a feature series featured on it, and it was very interesting. So we do a travel essays and travel essays. Yes, and I will, I, I will actually send it to you. It was about Hindu heritage of Hin Vietnam. Yeah. Yes, well, our friends, the Shivananda people, teach yoga in Vietnam. Yeah. They have yeah. a center there. Yeah. They've invited us to and come. We have our course, Ayurvedic courses that now in Vietnam. Yes. Wow. Well, there you go. Well, uh, the Prime Minister just announced that the Archaeological Survey of India would do help the Vietnamese government in the renovation and the yes. kind of the works that are required in Mysore. Mysore. Yeah, absolutely. Just the other. Yeah. Many shivalings are there throughout uh, Vietnam. But before we wrap up, I do quickly want you to... For the benefit of our audience, could you give your website so that okay, people who want yes, to know yes. more about you right. and want to connect with you, yes. what is the best way to do it? Yeah, the website is very simple. simple. It's Veda, V-E-D-A, but Veda with an net, V-E-D-A-N-E-T, but then we have a dot com after that. Okay. <laughs> Vedanet.com. And we also have Facebook and Twitter yes. and many published books on Amazon you can yes. find, whether in India or the United yes. States, the West, and we have books into 20 different languages, yes. including a number so of Dr. Frawley is on on Facebook, he's on Twitter, he is um, vedanet.com is a website that you can go to. Over a hundred articles original there. Yes, yes, and I urge um, everyone, everyone to go to his website, read what he has written and um, sort of take it, imbibe Absolutely. it. And because Dr. Frawley has done so much, such phenomenal seminal work. work, I mean seminal work, it is something that our generation will always be indebted to. Always. I mean, Thank for you. your work that no, you've not done. Not just your generation. And Since I'm the young one, I'll, I'll put in my generation too. And generations yeah. to come. And Arise Arjuna came really before the internet. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. And it, it, it sort of... And my it. first books were written on typewriters. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that tells you the whole story. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the last statement. But no, uh, anyways, this was a very special podcast and we deliberately chose to, that, chose to do that. And I'm sure you guys 
guys would like this discussion better than uh, Rahul Gandhi's Scott Sabhas. So <laughs> <laughs> it's it's probably a more informed discussion. But if you know, for the benefit of our listeners, we'll have a couple of jokes on that too next week. Next week. But I, I'm 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 thrilled and delighted that Dr. Frawley agreed to do this podcast with us. It's personally also very uh, appeasing for us because we. Embedded some of our personal <coughs> questions in there. Yes, right? no we have had for a long time. So it is, it is a personal evolution as and well, just to be able to sit in your company. And I'm sure our listeners will have a lot to say, discuss, and ask. You please uh, write to us, uh, comment us, uh, comment on our. Uh, and if there are questions for Dr. Frawley, we can we, forward, we can forward them to Dr. Right. Frawley as well. You can tweet us. You can write to us at infoatmind.net. Uh, don't forget us to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. We'll be back uh, same time next week with a more. Uh, I, I doubt if we're going to be able to live up to the discussion today, but no. we'll try our best to do the same next week. <laughs> Till then. And if we can't do it, we'll get Dr. Again. again, yes. <laughs> no so till then, from me, Pramod, Sunanda, and Dr. Frawley uh, in Houston, uh, this is goodbye.